My name is Padraig Tuma, and um, here's a poem called Time and Time Again. Time and time again, as an epigraph, forever is composed of nows by Emily Dickinson. Today, I took a pencil and drew a little shape, mostly round, but not a perfect circle. And then I drew another and another until I'd filled the page and then the room until I'd spilled across that border that I hate until I'd filled a world with little shapes of imperfection gathered round an empty space, little skins that tried to hold themselves together, just like that shirt I don't fit into anymore, just like these words, just like the way I tried to wrap my arms around myself but never could, just like the coffin that my friend was laid to rest in, broken open now the time has had its way. Nothing lasts a lifetime, Yesterday I saw a baby and thought about her midlife crisis half a century from now. There was a time when I said I don't mind the way that nothing lasts forever. There was that time when I broke most of what I loved. There was that frightened time when language just abandoned me. There was that time when I woke early. When I took a little pencil, when I wrote time and time again, thinking love might start if I could start again. There was a time when I thought lines, once drawn, were straight. By now, we are all familiar with the significance of a curve and leveling the curve, but there's something called the Kubler-Ross change curve one that may have been a healthy addition to our understanding of where we find ourselves in this process of living into a new normal. Much like the stages of grief, which can also be applied to the changes we have been left to cope with, change, especially unexpected change, brings with it a roller coaster-like curve of emotional stages. There is shock at the beginning, which rises to denial, which then begins to descend into frustration and finds depression at the lowest point of the curve. As it begins to rise again, there is experiment, which is an engagement or perhaps curiosity with this new situation. And the steeper rise to decision of learning to work with a new situation, a less grim outlook, and then integration, where the curve levels and is the essential end of the curve chart. Where do you find yourselves these days? What stage are you navigating your way through? None of us have a map through this territory, so one has to meet each new phase as what it is, completely new. We will make mistakes along the way and need to find our way to grace with ourselves and with each other. As I began to recognize where exactly on the Kubler-Ross curve I've found myself, I have also made a conscious decision to pay attention to the kind of language I use. Battle, raging, siege, fight, crisis, catastrophe. These are just a few that are repeated in the news. The language of war. It's also a language of fear. What I've discovered is that if I replace these words with ones like grace, manage, understand, address, cope, 
And I literally ask myself in the morning what I am going to do today to handle what is expected of me. I find myself more in control, more capable of making decisions. That doesn't mean I'm not fearful at times. It just means I've realigned how I think, how I approach a difficult situation. It also opens the door to gratitude. I am more grateful for the people I encounter, for good conversations, for my shipped shopper who found lime tortilla chips. Part of what led to this was rereading a book written by today's guest, Padre Gotuma. In the Shelter begins each chapter with hello, an invitation into deeper engagement, a conversation with the situations presented. We'll discuss this during the interview, but for now, Padraig is a poet, storyteller, and a theologian. In fact, he was named Theologian in Residence for On Being just last year. Some of you may recognize him from his podcast, Poetry Unbound. Let's welcome Padraig to Poetkind. Welcome to Poetkind podcast, Padraig. I am so excited to sit down and chat with you. I am a huge fan of your your writing, both in nonfiction and also poetry. And I was first introduced to you through readings from the Book of Exile, which I just love. Oh, thank you very much. You are a theologian and a poet. And I think that is such an interesting combination. Not, not necessarily odd bedfellows because they both seek to illuminate the unseen but with dramatically yeah. different approach. Yeah, I mean, so much of the Bible is poetry. So, I mean, in some ways they are, they're very natural. You know, it's hard to be a theologian without, in a certain sense, um, having an appreciation for poetry because you spend so much of your time reading it. Um, and I think it's hard to be a poet without, in a certain sense, sharing the audacity of trying to come up with some new way of speaking about what's important. Mm. And at its best, that's what... Um, Biblical text is trying to say people put words into the mouth, into the mouth of God um, in a biblical text that has become crowned with other people's understanding of interpretation. Mm. And um, I, I think lots of people in poetry are trying to put words into a God's mouth that maybe they do or don't believe in, but some God that would say, uh, weak as I am, this is important. Mm. So I do think that there is some overlap, but yes, you're right. There are um, plenty of ways within which they are each doing different things too. I just think it's, um, you know, I, th I think of the work in the book of exile. You're able to capture situations, feelings in such a direct and unvarnished way. It's just so eloquent. And so um, it's more of a kinesthetic reaction as opposed to a reading or a heart thing it's a sensorial combination I mean that was the first book of poems I published um and I was uh I was so unaware about what publishing meant um <laughs> in a certain sense I I felt like I um just gave um some of the rawest pieces of writing that I'd ever done to a publisher. And they were like, thank you very much. We're going to use this. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and they were great to work with Canterbury Press. Uh, so generous and so supportive. Um, uh, but in, in, nobody thought to warn me to say, you're going to find it hard to open up this damn book when it gets released because you're going to feel very <laughs> exposed. Um, oh, yeah, that's an interesting uh, reaction, I suppose. 
I have five. I mean, I've published four books now. I find that whatever, whatever, every time it comes back, the the, the vulnerability is different each time, but it's still there. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> I I don't. I have very few published pieces out there, and and I'm slowly working on it. But each time I see one that's out of my reach, out of my touch, yeah. I look at it. It's like, oh, God, yeah. no, I I need that back. <laughs> Let me fix yeah, that. Your other book that. I am reading again for the second time is in the shelter. And this, this book, I mean, it's, it's nonfiction, but you do have poetry interspersed through yeah. it. And it, in fact, I actually recommend it many times to people who are, are looking for ways to work through their writing, whether it's prose or poetry. Um, and somebody said, oh, I'm trying to write this book where I, have some essays and then I have some poetry and it's like you have to read in the shelter. I love this book because it it changed perspective for me. It's in what way? Uh, you begin each chapter with hello and that made me think about how I greet circumstances in my life. Even something as simple or not simple as sitting down to write or facing a new day or facing you know, for example, we have an entirely new situation in my home, which is very difficult. And for someone who's an introvert and likes to be alone, we've welcomed our 90 and 95 year old, my husband's parents into the home, wow. which we thought would be for COVID to protect and yeah. support, which is kind of transitioning into this might be a permanent situation. Mm. And so I, I greet each morning. Well, hello. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> what, what is today? <laughs> and um, it was such a such a simple thing. It's it's your nature. I feel when I read in the shelter to accept a greeting in return from whatever's coming next. Mm. Yeah. I mean, in a certain sense, that book in the shelter is a, a long conversation between a life and its literatures, the literatures mm -hmm. that broke me and the literatures that bandaged me, trying to come up with some new ones, um, trying to honor the ones that worked, and then also trying to exercise the ones that didn't. Um, uh, and I, I've continued to have a deep um, respect for greetings in all kinds of languages, and greetings are multivarious and beautiful in all kinds of gorgeous language. Sawabona and Zulu, I see you. Um, mm, I really mm -hmm. like that one. Um, one of the lovely ones for the, in the morning time in Irish is uh, God be with you in the morning. And the oh, response like that. to that is God and Mary be with you in the morning. <laughs> and I, I just think it's glorious. And that's so particular yes. coming from a very, a very formal part of Irish Catholicism. If you greet somebody by saying God and Mary be with you in the morning, the response to that is God, Mary and St. Patrick be with you. you know, <laughs> to outdo each other with the litany of holy people to call One upmanship. But it, it, I know it only goes to three though. You don't add in breed or anybody else like that afterwards. Unfortunately, I'd love it if they, if we had a tradition of um, adding in other people over and over. Anyway, uh, so the but the possibility of greeting is a really interesting thing. What's behind hello? What's behind saubona? What's behind the smirgata maiden? What's behind these different words? What are they saying? Mm -hmm. um, 
and I, I really like that as a as a literary practice as well as a practice for a life mm -hmm. to simply look at the world and say hello to what's coming and um, I'm not I mean I didn't make this up um, it, it's, it kind of came to me at a particular period in my life when uh, one of the brothers in Teze spoke about how in the final um, second last chapter of the Gospel of John Jesus of Nazareth stands in this room apparently he's dead and apparently he's risen and you know all they know really is that an empire is um, murdering their friends mm. and um, splitting the group of people who are trying to figure out what the hell he meant and it just the gospel writer says Jesus stood among them and said to them peace be with you and that sounds very holy but the the brother in the monastery in Teze said well that was just um shalom or salam alaikum hello mm. And that changed my life. It really did. That little insight, just to think about what might it be like for me in the places of my fear, in the places where I feel split or torn or threatened or corrupt. Um, what might it be like to imagine a non-anxious presence in my anxiety and that non-anxious presence saying, hello. And oh, uh, it changed that. everything for me. And that's where it, that's where it came from. And for me, that, that isn't a question as to whether I believe in God or not. That is a question about what's the quality of the inner life like and what's the quality of conversation in the inner life like and especially when the inner life has some anxiety in it how might i be able to bring something non-anxious an imagination of the non-anxious and have a conversation with that imagination and then see what unfolds in terms of a response to that how can i imagine myself into a way of being present in a life especially those parts of a life that might feel pressured mm -hmm. that felt like a spiritual project for me um, uh, a kind of surviving project and then it also felt like a project of, of literature um, yes. when it came to writing poems uh, vulnerable poems you know poems about pain or poems about um, parts of my life that I would rather I had not lived through um, what might it be like to greet those and then to greet the possibility of writing about those um, yeah it felt like it was a small um, greeting technology that has um, that has really worked for me Rumi did a similar thing, you know, with his poem, The Guest House. Joy Harjo mm -hmm. also has that poem, Praise mm -hmm. the Rain. So yes. I, I think it's a very it's a very human thing to take an inventory of your life and to find a way, especially with the things that you might want to reject, to find a way of some strange kind of hospitality towards them and then to see what unfolds. Not because they're necessarily great, but simply because they're there and you might as well speak to them uh, instead of ignore them. There's an openness, you know, there's a receptiveness yeah. when you offer yeah. a sincere greeting. Yeah, or a hope of one. <laughs> yeah, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, partly for me by saying hello, I'm hoping to open myself to the things that I don't want to say hello to. Mm. That certainly is the practice for me. And for, sometimes with the more difficult things that I greet, and I do, as, I do it most mornings still, um, I, um, I suppose creating um, a word act by saying something, I'm hoping that the saying of it will create it, by saying hello to something. Um, isolation, for instance, or mm. changed income, or, you know, it's not like these are great things. Um, right. It's not like I want to be greeting them. By saying, a speech act isn't that the, the phrase that's used in literary philosophy, but by by enacting a speech act, that somehow the, the speaking of something aloud will help to bring about a change in internal disposition. I just love that because, yeah, I mean, it 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 shifts perspective in such a profound way with such a little word yeah
Well, I jumped right into the conversation. Um, usually I begin by checking in and seeing, you know, if, if poets will share a little bit about um, who they are and where they came to poetry. Uh, I'm sure there are folks that might be listening that might be their first experience with you and your work. And so I would love for them to get to know you a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, so I grew up in Cork on the very south coast of Ireland. I'm number three of six children. Um, I um, am from a family that has a, a, a number of loves. Um, religion, the Irish language and science, I think, uh, were three, three and music, um, things that my parents um, gave to us. Um, so I've, four, four of my siblings are involved in science, you know, as either as engineers or biologists, and then there's me and one of my sisters, um, Maeve, and we are referred to as the humanities department, disparagingly, by um, my dad, <laughs> um, who has a deep love of physics. Um, so yeah, yeah, the Irish language, the Irish school curriculum. I'm 44, so I mean, I started going to school when I was five, primary school. The Irish school curriculum. Um, was very very poetry heavy i think it still is i hope it still is um we don't have children so i don't know um so we were learning poems off by heart in irish and english every week from the age of five to 17 mm. and that just meant that you were constantly in conversation with the poem now half the time i bloody hated the poems you know <laughs> the reading poems by sean o'reardon a cork poet whose work i love now but you know when you're a 10 or 11 and you're reading a poem by him about a midlife crisis you're like oh for god's sake shut up like what does that even mean you know you have no intel intelligence um uh, well you I have think no intelligence about the poem. yeah you've no intelligence about the poem but also that poem has no intelligence about an 11 year old and i think that engagement with poetry does need to be reciprocal and i think we need certainly poems should be perhaps chosen that, that can be intelligent that said i'll contradict myself by saying that there is something brilliant about learning poems that you simply can't understand and saying these weighty complicated words as a nine-year-old so mm -hmm. I, I i'm of two tongues about that um about what i think about poems maybe it's the way that they're taught rather than um whether what what kind of poem you should or shouldn't be learning so poetry has been part of my life um, ever since that. Uh, so I, I do really credit the Irish school um, curricula for embedding uh, in me something that has sustained me throughout all these years. Yeah, well, I think I didn't it's a study poetry. Though I didn't study poetry at university. I studied theology, but as mm -hmm. we were saying earlier on, so much of that is um, so much of that is formally poetry as well as so much of what, what you're doing in theology, especially if it comes to studying religious text, is looking at a hermeneutic about how to approach a text. And in, in many ways, that is a poetic of literature. Um, mm -hmm. So I feel like I've been working with language all my life. Yeah. And for me, having the Irish language, having Irish and English, um, I think has vastly informed my relationship to English and my relationship to language. Um, I did French then for five years in school. Uh, five years is only five years, but I loved it and I did well at it and lived in Switzerland, French-speaking Switzerland for a while then in my 20s. And so language is really important. And I have a deaf auntie and so I got a sign language dictionary and um, learned as much sign language as I could as well, because I also found that an extraordinary uh, language with the vast vocabulary and etymology. So yeah, there's um, an language for me is very alive. Is so different. Yeah, totally. And uh, there is a an intelligence and a kind of a 
a four dimensionality to sign language that that makes it an evolution of language mm -hmm. um, rather than something that's to do with any kind of impairment i think that's really um there's a a deep tradition with irish poetry or poetry in ireland i guess i should say as far as you are trained up with it all through school and so it's a natural extension in some ways it, it forms a way of seeing i don't think we have that i don't remember learning poetry growing up in school okay. here wow. and okay. um, wow. you know unless it happened to be a book that rhymed that we were reading but there was nothing intentional yeah, yeah. about education okay. and poetry so i think yeah, and I think that the expression of it is so different. Yeah, in some way. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, poets have been so much part of the Irish um, landscape over over the oh yeah culture over the last two hundred years, and very importantly, so I mean, the relationship between poets and politics has um, for for centuries been vital. Um, mm. We, we learned all kinds of poems that, you know, it might be a, a short sonnet shaped poem to uh, a loved animal on the farm. But, you know, our teacher would have taught us that that was a way um, that the animal on the farm is being used as a metaphor for Ireland. And this poem is being shared around as a way of speaking about nationalism during a time when your country is being colonized. And so to speak with great fondness towards an ox or a bullock, um, this poem, they, this you, you, you know, you were taught very intuitively that you can speak about one thing while focusing on another. Mm. And the, you see the subtle, surreptitious art of poetry um, in that way. Uh, and that that was used in, almost as a tool of defiance for people to use language for cleverness when your language is being persecuted. And mm. um, that, that's an education in politics. Certainly, it politicized me when it came to the recognition of the politicization of the English language and the impact of that in Ireland over the last 200 years. So, mm. um, yeah, that, that was very exciting, really, to see the possibilities about how language and poetry can be used to speak about everyday things. Um, I'm gay, and so I um, began to use poetry in the same way to speak about um, the experience of being a gay teenager way before I ever told anybody. Mm. I, I used to go camp. I used to go camping with some friends. And I had this cheap, terrible, shitty tent. You know, it was <laughs> awful. This that thing. God, I can't believe that I ever thought it was safe to camp in. But I camped all around the country in it. And um, I once wrote um, a uh, a poem in honor of that tent, and I knew I was speaking about being gay but I was, I was speaking to the tent. And so um, an, ed an education in the political nature of poetry, as well as poetry that needs to be written in care because you're worried about its supervision or its censorship. Um, an education in that gave me some tools for surviving my own life. There's limitations to the Irish tradition in poetry too, because it has favored for centuries male poets and um, so many female poets, um, their work was not recorded. Some of them were kept from learning how to write so that their work would not be preserved. Or there weren't even, they, some of them weren't even given the name poet. They were given the name of a keener, you know, somebody who'd cry queen at a, at a funeral. 
Mm. So there was a kind of a demoting of the possibility of public role of poet towards women. And that um, continues to need to be readdressed. There was a fancy anthology of Irish poetry of the last few hundred years came out recently. And I think there was something like six out of 52 contributors were women, uh, you know, and there, there was enormous um, criticism, rightly so, of the editors. Um, there's a great book called The Wake Forest Book of Irish Women's Poetry. That's a magnificent anthology that uh, that Wake Forest University Press had brought out. And so the, the much and all, as you can speak with great honor about the, the, the role of poetry and the role that poets have had in Ireland over the last number of hundred years, I think it would be um, remiss not to mention the, um, the the way within which um, the, the powers in that have veered into um, flexing that power of misogyny and silencing women's voices. I hadn't even thought about that. It made, it made it gave me pause because I'm going who who have I read that you know the list of Irish poets? It's like there's not a single woman on there. Yeah. So well, my education the, the is way, about to yeah. <laughs> about oh, yeah. to grow. I really. Yeah, I really do recommend the Wake Forest book of Irish women's poetry. They've collected some magnificent poets there. Um, yeah, but, but then, like when you think of contemporary poetry, it's, it, I mean, the, the field is so populated with extraordinary writers. And um, Colette, um, oh, that's terrible, her name has just um, gone out of my mind. Colette Bryce has just become editor of Poetry Island Review and previous to her, there was um, Yvonne Boland and Paula Meehan also was another chair of Poetry Ireland. Um, Dearne Nicoreafa writes in English and Irish and Nolan Nigonel also writes in, writes in Irish and then she's translated into English. So there's the, the field is vast and Maura Makati mm. is a poet that we learnt um, when we were in school. So there is a, a, a diverse and vast and brilliant um, uh, series of poets in Ireland uh, who are women who uh, whose work is magnificent. Um, but unfortunately, you do see situations where it is um, male poets or um, dead male poets, perhaps, who are extolled <laughs> as the kind of cream of the crop of Irish poetry. And that isn't the case. They're brilliant, but they're amongst other people of other genders who are also brilliant. Who are, you know, they, they, there must be times, I don't know if you experience this, um, maybe it's my sense of humor that allows me to think that maybe you'd be at a loss of words at times. Who are the poets <laughs> that you turn to when your words feel weak or quiet? Um, so I... I I have a, a deep and long-lasting friendship with Marie Howe, New York poet, um, but I also love her work and knowing her as a close friend and um, knowing her as a close friend hasn't interrupted my awe in the face of her craft. It hasn't diminished. You know, the way sometimes you'd be worried that if you get to know somebody personally, that then somebody, somehow you're going to see their work and think, oh yeah, you know, I'm, that familiarity would breed a sense of being, uh, I don't know, um, of, of diminishing or devaluing the relationship with the printed word. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I think why Marie's work moved me so much is because she's perfectly present to herself. Talking to Marie about the question of form is so interesting because she always wants to say, well, how do you talk in your normal life? Like, how do you talk on the phone? How do you talk to your friends? What's that form? 
maybe reproduce that form in her writing. So, um, and then her relationship with the question of the lyric I is fascinating and one the politic of that. And um, I think to Marie's interest in um, stripping away uh, the over declaration that can sometimes seem like it's the pathway into poetry, the old, maybe uh, like putting in too many metaphors or similes or mm -hmm. all kinds of clever words. Marie's work um, focuses so clearly on the spoken event and then reveals the spoken event, the everyday event, in all its strangeness. So when she does go into metaphors or when she does use simile, you're struck with such power and force in it. And so Marie's poetry is hospitable because it asks you to pay attention to the story of your life. And it's brutal because it asks you to strip away decoration. So mm. I find that Marie's work um, does that. Um, Patrick Kavanagh is a favorite poet of mine. Um, and I turned to him too, 20th century Irish poet, wrote in the English language. Um, and his life was plagued really by a certain sense of inferiority, not because he was an inferior poet, he knew damn well he wasn't, but because he came from a poor family in a poor part of the country and trying to fit in with the literature society in Dublin when he eventually got to move there, um, filled him with a deep sense of his own rage, I think, <laughs> and um, his toxic practices then as an editor when he became an editor of a, or a reviewer when he became the, the editor of a magazine that he published. So um, there's, a, there's a warning in his life as well as eventually a turning back toward the land that he had previously hated and the landscape that he previously hated in Monaghan. So I, I find a landscape that I know very, very well in his work. And I find a bravery too about the the um, horrors and healings of religion in his work. He continually turns toward the question of God, even though you wouldn't necessarily call him a poet of devotion. And that's uh, that's an in-between space too that I feel like I inhabit. I've mm. spent mm -hmm. decades now studying questions to do with God. So I feel like I've been only, the only way I'm able to survive that is by believing whatever the hell I want, <laughs> and knowing that my life will probably be um, continue to be haunted and healed by the question of God. I, um, I appreciate the the connection there within your work because I know that poems about God can seem so big, <laughs> and I don't I don't write from my own perspective, and I also don't connect well with poetry and other writing that talks big about God because my relationship with him is so different um yeah you know without getting kind of i don't know woohoo <laughs> you know it's like i don't i i recognize his presence in the small things and yeah. i don't feel like i have to go into any particular building mm. to recognize him um mm. and so poetry that speaks plainly and directly about questions, about understanding, about knowledge, mm. are able to, to scratch away at that, that painted covering that separates us so often from the things we want to think about and the things we want to believe. Mm. Yeah. Kavi Akbar is editing a book that's coming out next year, or maybe it's this year, um, a book of spiritual poetry. I'm really looking forward to hearing and to reading what he has curated together in that. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think the question of God has um, 
uh, has interested and overwhelmed poets of all kinds of beliefs and unbeliefs and doubts and certitudes and atheisms and agnosticisms for, for millennia. Um, and, and I think uh, a poem about God, whatever that means, that's well written, I think is exploring its own edges. Um, I sometimes read poetry that seems to be a substitute for a sermon that wraps itself up neatly in the end and tries to say something at the end that you're clearly supposed to have gotten a message. And I think that that poem isn't being honest enough with itself. It's hiding the fact that it basically is a sermon packaged up in rhyme or form. Yeah. And a poetry about the question of God needs to be raw, I think, and needs to be written, not from a point of view of... Um, trying to imagine yourself as somebody's messiah by giving a, a saving message but rather trying to imagine yourself as hungry and wondering what, what might it mean for hunger to be satisfied is, is such a thing possible and yeah. i'm always interested in poems that are um, intelligent about their own hunger especially poems that might be veering into question with religion rather than poems that are going to sound um preachy I'm sure yeah. most people who write poetry have this anxiety, you know, the, the, the thing they hate to be introduced as, you know, I know some people who hate to be introduced as a confessional poet because they're like, oh, stop doing that because that's just a very gendered way of speaking. You know, a man can use the lyric eye and people are like, oh my God, you're a genius. You speak about the every person. You know, a woman speaks about the lyric eye and they're like, oh, you're an amazing confessional poet. So, <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of ways within which these um, prejudices can happen and then, you know, they can be very limited in their imagination and very um, limited, you know, to be called that. And I hate, partly because it's not true, but I hate being introduced as a Christian poet because oh, yeah. I just think, oh God, you know, I just immediately see myself in a bad font in front of a cheap card. You know, so. <laughs> I, so, I have a background. Here, I, I have, well, go ahead. You have a background. Oh, well, I have I'm a background. Curious, as a, how are you going to finish off that sentence? Oh, I have a background as a visual artist. I have a master's in painting. Oh, oh and really somebody said something about me being a Christian artist. I didn't know yeah. how to respond. It, it, it's like, you know, my work, it immediately changed how my work was perceived. I love so to address complex questions, whether it's visual or written work. And it, they're deeply conceptual, but when you say uh, it's a Christian artist and it can be a conversation stopper. Yeah, it can. And it can imply that there is an agenda behind the work that you're doing rather than a conversation. Yes. Um, I mean, I, my, I did master's in the Gospels, so I'm fascinated by the literature of the Gospels. And I think the character of Jesus of Nazareth is so intriguing and so bewildering and so infuriating and so compelling. Um, mm. But this word Christ, you know, coming from Greek for Messiah, is such a strange word. And you see the way within which that title, Messiah, the people who call themselves followers of this, have done some amazing things around the world. Um, and done some terrible things. People who seem to have acted as a self-appointed messiah went and um, so-called civilized people in Australia in the name of, you know, bringing something there by their own self-appointed messianic status. Mm. Um, and so Christ is a curse um, as well as something to aspire to. And it depends as to what you mean by it. So I'm very mm. nervous about the word Christ 
because yeah. I think it has been so practiced to be such a hellish word rather than anything that has to do with um, challenging power. Mm. Similarly then in Ireland to the word Christian, like if you, somebody says they became a Christian, that basically means they became a Protestant. You know, oh. regularly I would have been asked, you know, are you, are you going to become a Christian? Which means, you know, leave Catholicism behind. And, and so there's a politics of that in the Irish context that, that I'm really uncomfortable with too. Um, I, I have a new collection of poems that I'm looking for a publisher for, and I have um, a, uh, a lot of the poems circle around the question of God and try to make use of some of the received biblical literatures. Um, I'll read one here for you. Make believe. Thank you. Make believe. And on the first day, God made something up. Then everything came along. Seconds, sex, and beasts, and breaths, and rabies. Hunger, healing, lust, and lust rejections. Swarming things that swarm inside the dirt. Girth, and grind, and grit, and shit, and all shit's functions. Rings inside the tree trunk, and branches broken by the snow. Pigs' hearts, and stars. Mystery, suspense, and stingrays. Insects, blood, and interests, and death. Eventually us, with all our viruses, laments, and curiosities, all our songs and made-up stories, and our songs about the stories we've forgotten, and all that we've forgotten, we've forgotten. And to hold it all together, God made time, and those rhyming seasons that display decay. I could just sit with that and think on that for a long time. It's, um, I, I love the, the juxtapositions of all these things, the simplicity of them, but the intricate beauty of each one that's so deeply connected with creation. Yeah. Well, for me, like pig's hearts and stars, I was uh, yeah. trying to think about, you know, two things together. You know, you hear, you know, from Joni Mitchell and other people about stardust and, you know, the order of creation and, you know, where the world, where, you know, where matter came from after the yeah. Big Bang. Um, a friend of mine had a, an aneurysm when he was in his early 40s. And so he has a bit of a pig's heart in his heart and mm. saved his life. And so... Um, I was thinking about the tiniest level of us in terms of um, stardust. And then I was thinking about a tiny part that helps my dear friend stay alive, a bit of pig's heart. Mm. So that's where those two bits came from. <laughs> Perfect. It was a fun poem to write. Yeah. Well, and it's such a, I don't know. It's like, am I, I don't know if I'm wrong. I want to read that to my grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like here's the answer in some ways it's everything it's everything all together um there is a little bit about children in it actually because there's the bit second sex and beasts and breaths and rabies breaths and rabies was really me wanting to do a queering of the idea of breasts and babies. I wanted something that if somebody was skim reading it, they might say breasts and babies or <laughs> want to say and then stumble over it. I wanted to play with the idea of anticipation. But further on down, it speaks about eventually us with all our viruses, laments and curiosities. And that's code for babies. Because yeah. I think babies are small, 
kind of um, virus machines and virus factories who are filled with curiosity and lament that they haven't been fed enough. I'm, I'm from a big family. I love kids. Um, so thinking of children as, you know, little walking petri dishes of curiosity and virus and lament um, was a way for me just to have a, a, a curious side door into the question about um, what the what, what it means to be a young human when you are a young human. And then Oh, the way that you grow up and the questions about the quality of the stories that you tell and remember as you grow up or are told as you grow up was one of great interest to me. I'd like to um, maybe switch gears just a little bit. I don't want to take up too much of your time. You have a wonderful new project that I try to cheer on as much as possible with On Being uh, called Poetry mm-hmm. Unbound. I look forward to this so much and each each episode is just a wonderful look at a single poem and it makes you stop and take a deep breath and pay attention and then you talk about what that poem looks like through your eyes and how did that get started i mean it's such a great thing um it's kind of an evolution of a friendship with krista tippett and with the team at on being I've, kind of, I've been listening to the program for many years and then Krista blurbed a book that I wrote a long time ago and I led a couple of retreats and then I I did some practicing of some of the on-being community dialogue resources when those are being released. So there's been a long conversation with um, Krista Tippett and the, t- and the team there, um, which has been a lovely thing. Um, and uh, poetry has for a very long time been something that on being have featured, you know, yes. so many poets have been featured over the years. Um, and I suppose Krista was curious about what might it mean during the increasing polarity of language over the last number of years um, and the increasing way within which the gulf between left and right can seem to be unfathomable. And then the increasing um insipidity of the imagining of false equivalency also and some attempts to try to say oh let's just all be together and be nice can just seem insipid or Mm. toxic or um and certainly naive and so um i'd been taking a year um with a a poet over the last number of years so i took a year to read through all of emily dickinson's work although it ended up taking me two years then a year with Lorna Goodison's work. She is the recently completed Poet Laureate of Jamaica. Um, took a year with R.S. Thomas as well, that complicated um, patron saint of agnosticism from Wales who died in the year 2000. He was a priest in the church in Wales. Um, so I'd be tweeting out some of those on a regular basis, just a photograph of the poem. I might even say it a little bit in it, and whatever you can say in a tweet. And um, Krista texted a couple of years ago and said, um, I've been reading and turning to the poems that you're tweeting out. Do you want to make a radio program together? Um, and uh, so by the time I'd finished the, the, um, the tweet, I had um, changed career <laughs> or the text that she'd sent. Um, uh, yeah, that was, where, that, was the, that was where that all came from. And then the format that we have for the poem where I read the poem and then discuss the poem and then read it again at the end. Um, that really comes from Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, one of the um, producers, um, senior producers at On Being. Um, 
senior editor. Uh, so the, the, the whole format for the show is a little bit of a, um, a love child between people who enjoy working with each other and who have various relationships with poetry. Um, I read a lot of poetry and I love the technicalities of it as well as the way within which it connects with the question. And I love how one poem will be in conversation with all the other poems in the volume. Um, Lily, Anna Maria and Krista are both like, yeah, that's great for the kind of tiny proportion of people who care for that. but how does this point to the human condition? How can somebody who's not going to sit and read all 1775 of Henry poems have an introduction to one of her poems in a way that makes them feel like they're paying attention to their own life and that Emily Dickinson was paying attention to their own life. And so the, the, the way that the poem, the, the program evolved is a lovely collaboration between people who bring very different interests regarding the question of poetry together. It's been glorious. We started off actually with some scripted episodes um, where I would basically write, I don't know, 600 words or 700 words about a poem. And then I'd read it, say those words, and then read it. And um, we listened back and it just sounded a little bit like an essay. And so these days what we do is I give a list of questions to the producer and they ask me that and we record that. And then we take different parts about what came from that. And sometimes they're my questions, but other times the producer will ask their own as well, because it's conversational, the tone of voice isn't rehearsed or isn't scripted. Yeah. And, um, so it's been lovely. It's been amazing to, to, to hear what people have written back to us to say, you know, that they had always loved poetry, but education had made maybe made them feel stupid in the face of a poem or that they'd always been taught, you know, that they needed to grasp for the impossible, that they needed to know everything about the life of the poet before they could have a relationship with a poem. Mm. Um, and it's been so moving to hear from hundreds of people um, from all parts of the world um, speaking about how listening to a poem opened them up to the poetry of their own life and um, that they felt respected by the poem and that they the poem offered a humble posture towards um, this, the, the circumstances and the events that are happening for them. It's interesting because um, it's, it's hard to have a conversation with anyone and not make reference to what's happening in the world right now. And yeah. I, I thought it was great that the response from uh, you and on being was poetry unbound and friends and yeah. <laughs> the, the, these these snippets of, of turning to poets to talk about work that they either love and speaks to them or their own work and read and yeah i think I feel like in some ways we've been invited into different people's living rooms in a way that we never would have before because suddenly we're, we're all experiencing the same thing in a different way, in a different place. And so that commonality, I think, has changed how we're willing to reach out to others and experience them. So I, I love if you take a minute and just talk about that too, the evolution of that um, little fun, <laughs> fun experience. Yeah, I mean, it's a very strange thing to know what to do with the way that the world is. We're in the middle of change and mm -hmm. you can hear so many people desperately trying to say, and here's what this change will look like. And that's trying to tell the future. And we don't know yet. We can barely tell the present. We know that um, things have changed. We know that yeah. And people are staying at home. We know that um, past pandemics come in waves and um, are measured over the course of a few years. 
rather than over the course of a few months. And we're at the beginning of that. And I think desperately trying to figure out how we can be human in this and be at the same stage of technology and income and progression and industry that we're at and, you know, and make sure people don't die. So I think there's a new urgency. Um, but that urgency has already been lived into by many people who've been living urgently for a long time. Yeah. A friend of mine is a le legal advisor to the Red Cross in New Zealand on humanitarian law. And um, so she regularly concerns herself with the circumstances that are happening in humanitarian crises. So she's poised, really. Rebecca Dudley is her name. She's poised to be a fantastic commentator on what happens in these crises. And she says, crises bring out the best and the worst, you know. And so I think we have to pay attention um, um, to the best, which is magnificent and lifts the heart, and also to the worst. And it's easy to think that the worst will come from, you know, whatever politician you particularly despise anyway. But the worst might also come from somebody who you think is trying their best, but is actually getting it catastrophically wrong, or is being mm. manipulated, um, or thinks that the compromise they're making will be good or thinks that the compromise that they're rejecting is the good the best thing to do and we we, we know that we are caught in moments when it will be difficult to know what the good will be when it's trying to figure out how to respond to this and that places us all in very vulnerable situations um, towards each other yeah um, what i like about poetry and um that's why we wanted to continue some version of Poetry Unbound via the Instagram um, videos. What I like about it is that poetry isn't trying to um, prescribe the solution or, or the answer. Um, poetry is really something that we turn to that somehow shores up the heart and yes. gives some courage and might locate us and ground us really into something that can sustain us. And I think that is a really important thing to feel grounded in an old wisdom, uh, old questions. And you could argue that every poem is circling itself around an old question about what does it mean to be human? And so I um, think that a practice that does that grounding is a really good thing for all of us with, all, with the various responsibilities we carry for ourselves and for others, for communities or countries um, over the next while, next few years. Well, thank you. I will, um, I will begin to close with, with that. And I'd like to encourage folks to look you up on your social media. They can find you on Instagram and Twitter. And are you on Facebook? I don't do Facebook. Yeah, so I, do, I yeah, don't no, know. My, my profile is public. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I have a website as well that I neglect on a regular basis. <laughs> well, I'd like to encourage people, um, to look into your work, to explore who you are if they're not familiar with you. And I hope that I can send some new folks your way. This has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much, Pat. Oh, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. So kind of you to be in touch. Please make sure you find Padraig on Instagram at Padraig Otuma. That's P-A-D-R-A-I-G-O-T-U-A-M-A. -A -A. And Twitter at Duanala. And I probably said that wrong. D-U-A-N-A-L-L-A. -A -A. And search him out on Facebook. His website is padrigatuma.com, and don't forget to look up Poetry Unbound on your favorite listening platform and subscribe.
A final thank you to Podrick for joining me here on Poet Kind. And thank you to you. Thank you for spending time with me here on Poet Kind. Thank you also to those who've reached out to check in. So often it has come at just the right moment. I'll go back to my earlier question. How are you doing? I'd love to hear from you. Hear how you are doing, what creative things you have incorporated into your new routine. I know I couldn't write or create much in the first few weeks, but I am slowly finding ways to listen and respond. I hope you are too. Make sure to look me up on social media at PoetKind Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And please, if you like what's happening here, leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Each review or star or rating you leave for us moves us up in the ranking and helps more folks find Poet Kind. And as you go into your day, take a few moments, take a few deep breaths, and remember, we are better together. Let's compare notes, not ourselves. If you've made it this far, I have a treat for you. Padraig talks a little about the poem he read at the beginning of the podcast. Time changed with um, turning 40. I've never been somebody who's paid much attention to how old I am. You know, I am the age I am. You know, it's not, yeah. not much I can do about it. Um, I've never been somebody who's wanted to, you know, you know, hang on to one age. You know, you just think... But turning 40 did something different to me. It's not that 40 bothered me. I knew it was coming. Of course it was. I'm 44 now. Um, but it, it just launched me into a period of time to go, oh, wow, um, it, this is the beginning of midlife. Um, and that, that just felt like I turned a corner and I now could look back with perspective on something and mm. have some moments of evaluation. Um, and that was very interesting to me. Um, I, I'm not sure that crisis is the right word. It was just a different orientation. Yeah. And this question of time really, really interested me. And I began to think about, you know, all the friends that I'd buried and um, the difficulties that people go through in, in, in midlife and the way that, you know, I've seen some people where their earlier life has been filled with all kinds of goodnesses and successes. And then um, into your 40s and 50s, maybe some medical things come along or some circumstances in the people you love and um, change and you know there's periods of deep difficulty and struggle and um yeah this poem i think is really trying to think about that and grounding itself eventually in the idea that you can um, find a way to live a life by writing about it and that that can hold you together and um, even in the um, little circles that i draw on pages that, that might be a practice to hold you together uh, you know, no matter what age or stage you're in.